Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Sometimes different is better, and other times different isn't really better, it's just different, or worse, it's actually kind of dumb. So today, we are taking a look at a handful of very unconventional bikes and bike products that really stand out, largely because they look really weird, and we're asking the questions, why do these products exist? What problems are they trying to solve? Who is the target audience for these things? And then there's the big question, are these products more likely to become the next big thing, or are they destined for the proverbial dustbin of history? In the show notes to this episode on the Blister website, we've included photos of the stuff that we're talking about here, so you can go check all of that out. And to guide us through this collection of unusual products is David Golay, who is a new Blister contributor, and he is somebody who I am currently going back and forth on whether his official title ought to be our in-house oddities expert or just Blister bike kook. I don't know. We'll see what sticks. Anyway, before we get started, this episode of Bikes and Big Ideas is brought to you by Outer Bike Mount Crested Butte. The best bike demo in the universe returns to the world's best trails from August 16th through the 18th. You can choose from over a thousand different bikes while enjoying the world famous trails of Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte. All full demo registrations and bring your own bike registrations include access to the lift served cross country and downhill bike trails of the Crested Butte Mountain Bike Park, as well as access to classic rides like Lupin, Upper Loop, and the Lower Loop. Register today at OuterBike.com. And while you're up in Mount CB, you should come say hi to us and come check out Blister HQ, which is located in the Elevation Hotel right next to the chairlifts. So come ride Outer Bike, come say hi to us, and come check out Blister HQ from August 16th through August 18th. And now let's talk about some potentially pretty sweet or potentially pretty stupid bike stuff with David Golay. Well, David, first of all, welcome to Bikes and Big Ideas. This is your debut on the Blister Podcast Network. I don't know how you should feel really about the fact that when we decided to do an episode on like weird bike shit, that, you know, you got the call out of the dugout. <laughs> I guess I am the guy who has a Nikolai trail bike with a Fox 40 on it and stuff. So maybe out of the stable of blister reviewers, I am the kook. I, you know, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I kind of think you are the kook. And I mean, we are actually going to be putting up pretty soon here your review of this kind of wild looking bike yeah it's a nikolai g16 it's one of their geometron bikes so it's one of the longest slackest <laughs> bikes that i'm aware of out there with you know a few exceptions like the pole machine it's a 155 millimeter travel 650b enduro ish kind of bike but just a particularly burly and aggressive geometry one. And then I happen to have a slightly lowered Fox 40 on it right now, just to make it slightly more weird. So uh, <laughs> we'll be talking about that one soon on, in a full review. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that is just an absolutely wonderful lead in to 
this conversation on, you know, oddities in the bike world. You know, the other reason we brought you in is because you happen to be really good at talking about this stuff and I think explaining it in clear ways. And so, you know, you're not just a kook. You're a pretty articulate kook, and uh, that's why we like you. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go ahead and get to it. First on our list here, I think we want to talk about the trust message fork. Yep. So for a little bit of background information on it, the trust message fork is a relatively recently released 130 millimeter travel linkage front fork. Uh, if you haven't seen any pictures of it, it's a pretty wild looking contraption, um, mostly carbon fiber construction. And the main structure of the fork is raked out super far forward. And then the front wheels attached to a set of pivoting links that are trailing behind the main structure and producing travel that way instead of using a telescoping arrangement like the overwhelming majority of mountain bike suspension forks out there. So it's crazy looking. It's super, super expensive. When they first launched it, it was retailing for $2,700. They've since dropped it down to 2000 which still puts it at you know, roughly double what, say, a Fox 36 retails for. So it's exotic looking, spendy, and they've got some pretty bold claims about the performance of it. And so as far as kind of overall specs and weight, like I said, it's 130 millimeters travel. It is, they claim it weighs 1,980 grams, which puts it at almost exactly the same weight as a Fox 36. And it only comes in one length and travel configuration, which is usable on either a 29er, a 27.5 plus bike, or a standard 27.5 bike. And one of the kind of wilder to me claims that they make is that it's suitable for use on a 29 or 27.5 plus bike that's designed around a 110 or 240 millimeter travel fork or a 27.5 bike designed around a 130 to 140 millimeter travel fork. And the reason that that arouses a bit of suspicion on my end is that you've got this one fork at one axle to crown height and they're saying you can run it on a range of bikes designed around pretty different height forks and putting it on bikes across that range is going to potentially change the geometry of those bikes fairly significantly just because the overall height of the fork that you're putting on there is pretty dramatically different potentially. For reference, the axle to crown on it's about the same as a Fox 36 set to 150 millimeter travel in a 650B wheel size or about 10 millimeters taller than a 140 millimeter travel 29er 36. Um, and Trust on their website kind of acknowledges that that's a big claim and says that they had originally planned on making a bunch more sizes and then through their testing 
concluded that they didn't need to, but kind of hand wave their way through why. And so that's one thing that jumps out at me as being an interesting claim on their end and one that I'm a little suspicious of. Some of the other stuff they say about it that seems more straightforward and more clearly true is that for one thing, a limitation of normal telescoping forks is that they are kind of prone to binding up to an extent as the fork flexes and therefore not moving as smoothly and freely. And by going to a linkage that is pivoting on bearings, they can mitigate some of that, which checks out. And they're also saying that um, because you have these links that are rotating backwards behind the main structure of the fork, it produces a somewhat more rearward axle path than you get with a telescoping fork, which obviously is moving in a straight line at whatever angle your head tube angle is on the bike. And the potential advantages of that are that it's able to soak up kind of square edged bumps more readily because the wheel is moving somewhat more rearwards as it's smashing into stuff. And so it kind of moves up and over an obstacle a little bit more smoothly than a more vertical wheel path might, which checks out. And as we'll get into on some high pivot suspension bikes later in this, um, is kind of a similar claim that people making those sorts of frames make about them. And so I guess where I kind of land on this trust fork is that it looks really wild and really radically different than what really any of us are used to and comes in at a pretty astronomical price. And so for something to be that weird and expensive, they really kind of need to just kill it on the performance for it to make any kind of sense. And they make a bunch of pretty bold claims about it being smoother and lower stiction than telescoping forks and providing better bump absorption while also resisting brake dive better than telescoping forks. And a lot of those seem like they plausibly stand up to at least to a degree, but having not yet gotten on one, I am very curious to see just how true they are and if those benefits are really great enough to make the price make any kind of sense. You know, there are a lot of telescoping forks out there that work well and people have fun riding on and they're not blowing up all the time or otherwise causing problems necessarily, which isn't to say that there isn't a higher performing, better way. But if they're trying to supplant something that's already pretty good and do so at double the cost, they better really come correct with it. I think it's sometimes, you know, when we're like basically asking the question, like, why does this exist? Like why, why deviate and, you know, run away from kind of more or less the status quo I think it's kind of interesting to attempt to identify who is this product 
mostly for. If you take, for example, an innovation like the dropper post, I think there the answer is literally everyone. You know, like the beginner rider to the best rider on earth, everybody is going to have this like massively improved experience on a bike with a good dropper. The trust message, who's this for? Who's going to most uh, benefit from getting weird? I guess my thoughts are that the performance benefits that they're touting sound like things that would be beneficial to most riders. It's not like this sounds like a super demanding high performance thing that you have to be a World Cup racer to be able to take advantage of. How significant those benefits really are and whether it is a sufficiently night and day difference that a relatively inexperienced rider would notice that much is really hard for me to say, having not yet gotten any time on one. But you're putting it more into the broad application. Yeah, I think so. Yep. All right. What's up for second on our list here? So the next one was a sort of different take on a linkage fork, and that's the bike from Structure Cycle Works. So like the Trust, they're doing a linkage suspension fork, but where it really differs from the Trust is that instead of being designed to have a normal steer tube and fit onto whatever frame you might want to throw it onto, it's a frame and fork system that they've put together that where the two have to be used in conjunction with each other. And so it looks even less like a normal fork. You kind of have, again, a carbon fiber truss structure that pivots on a pair of roughly parallel links. But instead of having the fork be attached, or the main structure of the fork be attached to the frame and then a dropout that pivots on those links, the main structure of the fork is the moving part and the links go rearwards and tie into the down tube of the frame. And so the whole fork moves up and down on that. And then there's kind of a scissor link arrangement that goes up to the handlebar to connect the steering to it and allow it to compress at the same time. So this is an interesting idea in that it, at least in theory, kind of opens up a more complicated design space and structure also says similar things to trust about reduced brake dive and so on. So they're saying largely similar things about why their fork system is better and cooler than a telescoping fork. And they are also similarly enormously expensive. The frame and fork combination on those, which includes two DVO rear shocks, one to actuate the rear suspension and one that's used in the fork to control that, retails for about $6,000. Uh, so 
Well, the where it's interesting with them is that the they also offer two complete build kits, um, the at, that are coming in at something like eighty five hundred and about ten grand, so still mega expensive. But the ten grand build kit, especially, is obviously super super duper expensive. But it's a really really high end, super blingy build kit, and so in a weird way that actually kind of seems like a better value in that it's a, you know, it's mega expensive, but it's much more in line with, you know, a high end specialized or Santa Cruz or something than the 6,000 frame and fork combo is. And it's a similarly super blingy build. So it kind of gets to be a little bit of a better seeming value when you go that route. And this is a 150 millimeter travel front and rear 650 B bike with mostly pretty traditional, pretty standard geometry. Um, one thing that's a little bit interesting about it is that it's it comes in three sizes, which is not that weird. But the jumps between the sizes in terms of reach are somewhat unusually long. And so maybe that lets it suit a bigger range of riders, but also I can kind of potentially see there being people who fall in between a pair of sizes and the fits may be a little tough between the two. So that seems like a, uh, an interesting move on their part, though I understand not wanting to pay for the molds for 12 different sizes of a expensive low volume carbon frame too. So kind of a trade-off to be made there. All right. Who is the ideal or target audience for this? I think similar deal. It, it They're making similar claims about it. And it's a 150 millimeter travel, 650B trail enduro-ish kind of bike, which I think is a class of bike that makes sense for a lot of people riding a lot of trails pretty much anywhere in the world. And uh, again, it doesn't come across in their marketing descriptions or anything about the geometry of the bike or the claims that they're making about how it performs don't lead me to think that it's a super demanding, difficult bike that requires a super experienced rider or anything. It seems like a trail bike that would work for a lot of people if the claims that they're making about how it works stand up at least medium well. Let's talk about high pivot trail bikes. Why do this? <laughs> uh, yeah, so one of the more prominent high really the most prominent high pivot trail bike to come out recently is the forbidden druid and forbidden's a new small company based on vancouver island the druids their first and thus far only model that they've released and high pivot bikes had kind of a moment in the 2000s pretty much exclusively in the realm of dh bikes and the idea behind a high pivot bike is that by 
well, I guess to, to step back a little bit, the, when we're saying a high pivot bike, what I mean is that the pivot uh, about which the main swing arm to which the rear wheel is attached is much higher up on the frame relative to the bottom bracket than it is on a more conventional bike. In most cases, they are some sort of single pivot with or without an extra linkage to actuate the shock, but at least a single pivot in the sense that the rear wheel is connected to the mainframe via a solid member and a single pivot. So the location of the pivot is very clearly, apparently, a an attribute of the frame. You also have some other versions like the Canfield Jedi that are effectively a high pivot bike, though they're, they're not a single pivot, which has the same sorts of benefits that the trust guys are claiming for their fork in that you hit a square edge bump and the wheel moves in a direction more in line with the force that that big square bump exerts on the, the wheel. And so it can kind of move up and out of the way of the bump more effectively and smooth those things out. And I have ridden a bunch of the high pivot DH bikes that have been around and think that that is broadly true of them. They feel, generally speaking, really good mashing through big, chunky, rough stuff very quickly for that reason. The potential downside to them is that having the rear wheel moving so far back as the suspension cycles can make the bike feel less poppy in that you go to preload the suspension coming off the lip of a jump or something like that, and you don't get the same rebound from the suspension as it uncompresses because the rear wheel then is moving substantially forward as it returns and kind of feels like it's pulling you backwards a little bit and diminishes some of that pop that you get in that scenario, which makes the idea of a high pivot trail bike really interesting to me and something that I'm quite keen to try out, but I haven't ridden a high pivot bike in the 130 millimeter travel kind of range, which is where the forbidden Druid falls. And I can see it kind of going a few different ways. It could either be a really good combination of traits where you have a fairly short travel bike that still feels nimble and poppy by virtue of just not having a enormous amount of suspension to be squishing through and in the way that shorter travel bikes are just generally poppier than longer travel ones, but then getting some of the benefits of the rearward travel. I could also see it being kind of a weird master of none kind of thing where it doesn't really take advantage of the rearward travel that effectively because there's not enough suspension for it to really want to go a million miles an hour through a big nasty rock garden anyway and loses some of the poppiness of a short travel bike because of the rearward travel. And so I'm very curious to get on one of these druids and see. And I think it is a very intriguing concept 
and the bike looks really well thought out in a lot of other ways too. So uh, I'm excited about it and really want to try one, but have that kind of, that's the biggest question I have to answer about it, I guess. Okay. And so then on my whole, like, who's it for, who is the ideal audience you would say? Well, it's hard because I guess in large part, that answer is going to hinge on how my question about the combination of short travel and high pivot shakes out. If it's, if it turns out that it's a pretty short travel bike that feels especially good mobbing through rough stuff, then that I think would make for a really intriguing bike for stronger, more experienced riders who can handle a bit less suspension and a bit less forgiveness in rougher terrain and just charge through it while getting a little bit of help from the rearward suspension and then having a pretty light, pretty spry trail bike that they can go do a huge ride on and also charge with. So that's how it goes. And it, I think it would be something better taken advantage of by a pretty good rider. And if it's, I guess if it's more like it's a weird combination that doesn't stack up, maybe that means it's for nobody. It's dumb. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> the dreaded nobody and it's dumb category. To be clear, I don't really think that's how it's going to go. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this bike. I think it looks really cool. But it is an open question. Yeah, it is an open question. Let's talk about Starling. Yeah. So Starling is a little UK company doing mostly steel single pivot bikes. And their main bread and butter models are the swoop and the murmur which are pretty conventional single pivot low pivot bikes one's a 29er one's a 650b bike uh but he has also made a couple of really interesting looking high pivot prototypes that i think are one of them the stern is up on his website available for order it's and it's kind of a made to order one-off deal but it's officially ready to go and that one's a single speed downhill bike with a high pivot and a jack drive which is if anyone's familiar with the brooklyn's of old it's that same principle where you have the chain ring that's attached to the cranks on the left side of the frame and a really small short chain that runs up to the pivot location has a sprocket on that that's attached to a shaft that goes through the frame pivot and then drives a sprocket on the right-hand side of the frame that goes back to the rear wheel in the normal fashion. But you have the drivetrain split into two chains and it's kind of a, in some ways, neater way to package a high pivot bike where you don't have to have an idler pulley on the main chain that goes from the crank up over some idler pulley way up high on the frame like you do on most high pivot bikes and then going back to the rear wheel from there. And so 
in the case of that one, it's especially interesting because it means you have no derailleur, absolutely nowhere where there's any possible chain slap because you, it doesn't require a chain tensioner at all. There's an eccentric bottom bracket to get that set, but then it's just dialed in and that's it. And so he markets that one as being a quiet, simple, low-maintenance park bike, and it makes a ton of sense for that application. And then the other one is a prototype that I believe is as of yet unnamed that applies that same concept to a something like 160-ish millimeter travel 29er pretty burly enduro bike that then uses a conventional derailleur drivetrain once it gets through the whole jack drive deal. And that one seems pretty cool too. It's a braised steel and really simple, clean lines. Looks really pretty and is a neat seeming way to package high pivot bike and make it work on a more normal enduro kind of bike with a otherwise pretty conventional drivetrain. So who's going to get the most out of this? So the Stern, the single speed DH bike, I think is something for people who want a simple, reliable bike park bike that they can just beat on all season and do as little maintenance as possible. And not have to worry about too much, you know, kind of service the suspension and keep the wheels true. Call it good. And it looks like a ton of fun for that. I think that's a very real application and one that makes sense for maybe not a huge number of people, but some very real number of people. The enduro bike prototype, uh, I mean, it's a big, heavy, burly bike. And so that seems like one for someone who's either maybe wanting something that can kind of do double duty as a part-time bike park bike and also still be able to be pedaled up some stuff without wanting to die. Or for someone who just wants the most aggressive, hard-charging enduro bike that they can get their hands on and are willing to put up with it being pretty heavy and not the most fun thing to pedal, but then just rip super hard on the way back down. Final question. I wanted to ask you about Noah Bodman recently published this review of the Tannis Armor tire inserts. And, you know, we saw some folks in the comments section, you know, who were pretty psyched on these. We had other folks saying like they were definitely not sold on this and just, you know, one man's opinion here, but I wanted to get your opinion on what you thought of sort of the review or Noah's take and what you, where you kind of, you know, land on the spectrum from sold to skeptical. Yep. So I definitely land on the mostly pretty skeptical end of the spectrum with these. And I think most of what Noah said about them makes a lot of sense to me, I guess for some background, I haven't tried the Tannis armor yet. I have a lot of experience with Cush core and really like it. 
I've used Huck Norris a bit and think that that one makes potential sense for someone who wants just a little extra kind of pinch flat protection over running no insert. But for my personal use, I just felt that it was sort of too light duty and not enough sidewall support and pin flat protection for it to really be worth bothering with. On the other hand, it is way lighter than Kush core. So it's got that going for it. Um, that feels like a kind of different strokes for different folks deal to me. And they maybe both make sense for different people. The Tannis one. And you guys should go look at the review to see some better pictures and stuff. But the general idea of it is that it, uses a tube, but a much smaller diameter one that sits only kind of at the lower half of the tire, closer to the rim. And then there's a foam insert that wraps around that tube. And at the sidewalls, it's very thin, and it gets quite a bit thicker as it goes out over the center of the tread. And so the reasons that I'm sort of skeptical are that one anything that reintroduces tubes to a mountain bike is kind of an automatic red flag to me. They're a pain in the ass. Tubeless has been a great innovation and made mountain bikes better. And I don't want to bring tubes back Two, the thing that seems weird to me about it is that, or a thing is that you're putting the foam portion of the insert directly underneath the tread of the tire instead of most tubeless inserts where you're having the foam part near the rim. And what this means in the case of the Tannis is that the tire is basically riding on the foam and it's backed up by the air pressure in the tube inside of it. But the thing that's most immediately in contact with the ground is the foam. And so that means that you don't really quite get to vary pressure and have it make a difference in how the tire rides in the same way that you do with a normal tire. Because, and Noah touches on this in the review and says kind of the same thing, that it means that changing your tire pressure has much less of an effect because you have to squish the foam to make the outside part of the tire deform first. And so maybe if the squishiness of their foam happens to work just right for you, then maybe it's cool. But losing that adjustability, I think, is a pretty big negative. The one case where I can see it making a bunch of sense is that it does seem like it might be better than most of the other options out there at specifically protecting against punctures through the center of the tread because unlike a tubeless tire you have to get through both the casing in the tire and the 15 or so millimeters of foam before that particular mode of puncture gets to the tube so maybe if you live in let's say arizona and have to deal with goat heads all the time it could be a good fit there for me i live in the pacific northwest and goat heads aren't a thing here and the ways that I get flats are either 
sidewall cuts or pinch flats. And it doesn't strike me as the best solution for those particular problems, but maybe for tread punctures, it is a good one. I was mostly hoping that I could sort of create some real controversy here and you would just call Noah an <laughs> idiot and uh, <laughs> we would just start a just start a podcast war, really. Um, I bet we can find a different topic to do that on. But uh, in this particular case, I think we're pretty largely in agreement. Yeah. OK, well, I'll it's it's what I do. I enjoyed you yelling at Sam about the. Uh, Mantra 102 <laughs> on that recent Gear 30. That was fun. Well, yeah, but of course I yell because he deserves it, right? Like, just to be clear. Like, oh, yeah, so. calling that ski quick sounds insane. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of comments about that episode, and, and uh, it's funny. There are some, like, Team Sam, I think they just felt sorry for him, but I think most <laughs> rational people out there were just appreciative of a, an attempt to restore order in the in the rational universe. So anyway, yeah, keep fighting the good fight on that. I'll, I'll try man with Sam every day. It's a, it's a battle. I, I say that Sam is super smart. <laughs> I mean, Sam is a really fucking smart guy. I mean, if I thought he was truly stupid, I would just, he would not still be around, but it is funny how we just often come at these, like get at loggerheads with each other. So if some of you are listening to this and you have no idea what we're talking about, you can, um, Go check out our most recent uh, Gear 30 episode. I think it was episode 59. Well, hey, man, this has been good. I appreciate you kind of going through all this. I think you did it actually really clearly and really well. And so uh, it's interesting to see, right? And on the one hand, kudos to anyone ever who attempts to put new things out in the world. you know. And yet, just because you bothered to put new things out in the world doesn't mean anybody's going to follow you. And uh, so it's going to be very interesting to sort of see where all of this heads and where where the winners end up and, you know, who ends up in kind of the dustbin of history. Both It's, it's cool, too, because both of these ideas of high pivot bikes and linkage forks are things that were tried to an extent um, in the earlier days of mountain biking. Linkage forks especially, like Gervin did that the ProFlex thing in the, I don't know, late 90s probably. And that was, I think, the most recent really serious attempt at bringing a mainstream or a linkage fork to a mainstream market that I can think of. So seeing some of these ideas that were tried before but kind of done in days when mountain bikes were just a lot shittier in a lot of ways uh, is interesting to sort of see if now with better materials and technology and dampers and stuff, they can be resurrected and made to work better than they did 20 years ago. Well, hey man, listen, I appreciate it. We'll uh, we'll do this again sometime. Um, hopefully people keep making weird bike stuff. Yeah, here's to hoping. And it's great talking to you. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you later. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to David for the conversation, and we're going to now be seeing about getting more time on and reviewing more of the products that we talked about in this episode, so be on the lookout for that. And just one more heads up, you should definitely check out the Gear 30 episode that we are dropping tomorrow, where we are discussing who is pickier about their equipment, World Cup downhill bikers or World Cup skiers. So go subscribe to Gear 30 if you haven't already and check out that episode. Finally, I want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. 
I want to thank you for listening. And again, come out to Crested Butte and demo a bunch of bikes at Outer Bike and come say hi to us. And that's from August 16th through the 18th. Okay, now please take good care out there and we will talk to you again next week.